0: As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other and in fact you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody.
1: Keep those Bibles and that passage open in front of you. That's what we'll be looking at for the next little while. Um, do you want to please God? Uh, I discovered something about how to please God recently in my kitchen. Uh, I had the chocolate brownie pan in front of me. It was dessert time, and there was two pieces left, a corner piece and a middle piece. Now, I wanted to love my wife as the loving husband that I surely am. And so I thought, well, you know, the, 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 who wants the corner piece? It's crusty. It doesn't have any of the gooey centre. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give that to myself. And then I'll give my wife, Bethany, the nice piece, the middle piece. And so I took the two bowls out of the kitchen. I brought them and placed them down the dining table. Really kind of quite proud of myself. And Beth looked at my bowl and she goes, why did you take the corner piece? I was like... Well, I wasn't going to say anything, (laughs) but let me tell you why I took the corner piece. It's a really bad piece. And so I didn't want you to have it. I wanted you to have the nice piece. I wanted to please you. So I took the bad piece and she just looked at me and said, but that's my favorite piece. (laughs) What had I done wrong? I had assumed that I knew how to please Bethany based on what I thought was pleasing. And the mistake that I made at that point is that I had failed to ask her what she wanted. Now, the principle really important for marriages, that's a free one. You can take that into your future. Um, But that principle is really important for our relationship with God, isn't it? Uh, Because I think that we make the same mistake, and more often than we might suppose. We presume to know what will please God. Uh, I had a conversation with a person on campus recently, a student. He wasn't a Christian. And there was a certain point in the conversation where I asked him what he thought God's assessment of him would be at the last day at judgment. Uh, and he said to me that he thought that God would be happy with how he had lived even though he had not placed his faith in the Lord Jesus. In fact, he had moved away from that in his family. And I want to say the problem with that response is that is the exact opposite of what God has told us in his scriptures that will please him. Now, you go to a place like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, and we find out that without faith, it is impossible to please God. His point being that you can't do it with good works. You can't earn your way there. You have to do it by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus, being dependent on Him, and He, through what Jesus has done, will save you by trusting in His good works to stand in place of our sinful ones. And so, for us, kind of generally speaking, as Christians, as we gather in the CU, the fundamental principle that we sit on is that a life that pleases God is one that confesses faith in the Lord Jesus, and embraces him as saviour and king. But here's the thing. Even though we know that to be true, is that kind of our baseline Christian assumption, it's not as if when you become a Christian, you stop trying to please God. Because in turning to him away from whatever else that was that you were were living for before then, you are acknowledging something about God and his rightness and, and the goodness of his rule in your life. And so just like you'd want to please anybody who has authority over you, who you love, or maybe a parent, or maybe a boss, perhaps even a teacher, just like that, we want to please God. And that's why today's passage is really important for us, because the Apostle Paul begins in 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 1, um, this is what he says. Um, We instructed you how to live in order to please God. And then a little bit later on, he says, Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus. And so what we have here are some authoritative instructions from Jesus himself about how we can please God. And it's not the crusty corner piece. Ah, At least it is for me. It's the middle piece. And so this is what we're going to have a look at for the rest of the day. Um, so let's have a look. There's going to be two ways that we see how to please God here. They're not mutually exclusive, uh, and they're not the only ways to do it, but they're kind of two areas of our life that God would have us live in a certain way to please him. Uh, and the first one we see there in verses eight 3 to 8 is holiness. Let's have a look there at the first half of verse 3. This is what Paul says to Thessalonians. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now that's a tricky word, that's kind of Christian jargony word, but don't be thrown by it. Sanctified or sanctification, it's a temple worship term. We kind of pull it from the Old Testament, and basically what it means is to be set apart or to be holy. Uh, something that is dedicated for a specific use. So, for example, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you grew up in a household like this. I grew up in a house where we had two sets of dinner plates. Okay? You had the generic set. Uh, it was kind of chipped and broken and, and, and mismatched. Yeah, some people are grinning, you, you've been there, haven't you? This is your house. Anyway, and so this was mine as well. And So those were the plates that you would use every day. They were the plates that you'd give to the toddler, i.e. me, because you wouldn't really care if they got broken or not. But then... On the side of the dining room, there was a special cabinet with child locks on them, completely filled with these beautiful kind of almost china plates with kind of gold edges and and, and like an embossed floral pattern. And those plates were set aside. They were sanctified for special use. They'd come out on Christmas Day, they'd get washed, they'd go back, and then we wouldn't see them again for 364 days of the year. And that's what it is to be sanctified. Uh, When Paul says here that it is God's will for his people that they are to be set apart, what he's saying is they are to be distinct from the world from which they were called and pulled from. They were saved from a world in sin and rebellion. And God says, no, I'm taking you out of that for a special purpose. And he calls us to be different. He calls us to be holy. Now, we shouldn't cross over this. Um, I've had a few conversations with CUers over the last semester um, about God's will. And one of the things you would have noticed there in verse 3 is that it says it is God's will that we should be sanctified. And as I've had those conversations with some of you, it's almost been without exception that we end up talking about what we will do with our lives the choices we make, the activities we engage in, which job, which ministry activity, how will I serve at the CU next year, who should I marry, where should I live? It's it's about choices and activity and and direction. And strictly speaking, all of these questions are good questions. They're not bad questions to ask. Uh, In fact, asking them is a way that we live wisely in the world, uh, a way that we can honour the Jesus that we follow. But, But I want us to understand that when the Bible talks about God's will, it actually very rarely talks about those things. What it talks about is your character, not what you will do with your life so much as how you will live the life that you end up doing. And we see that uh, in this verse here. We see it again in verse 7. God's will for you isn't that you are impure or sinful. God's will for you is that you are holy and set apart. That's how you please him. And so if I could be a bit provocative here, God doesn't care what degree you do or job you choose or even the person you marry. It's not that God's indifferent to these choices and there are wrong choices. You don't marry an unbeliever, for example. But we expend so much time and energy trying to discern that one right path. And we are in anxiety all the time, worried that if we just make that wrong choice, our life is suddenly just kind of shot off to the side and we'll never recover. And we're somehow outside of God's will. But what God tells us in the passage here is that is not what discerning the will of God is about. In fact, he's already told you what his will is. It's be holy. And if you are doing that, then no matter what you choose you will be honouring God in it. Because it will constrain your choices, but then it will also free you up to go, you know what, it's not actually a moral choice to choose law or engineering. Some of you might think differently, but that's just how it rolls. Now, now holiness, it covers a whole lot of aspects of our life. In fact, all of our moral character. But in verses 3 to 8, you would have noticed in the Bible reading, Paul zooms in on a particular aspect of our holiness. And that's the issue of sexual immorality. Now that phrase, sexual morality, it's actually one word in the Greek, and it's sort of like used as a catch-all term to describe any sort of sexual activity that is outside God's boundaries and prescription for sex. So that could be things like adultery, it could be things like sex before marriage, or what we would call fornication. Uh, It could be pornography. It could be fantasy. Uh, In fact, it could actually even be some sexual practices within a marriage. So it's not just that you know there's this legalistic boundary, and suddenly you're in there and you can do what you want. Uh, How you conduct yourself sexually must be in accordance with how God has made it, and that's when it will be good and flourish. But anything outside of that is what the Bible deems as immorality. Uh, And and Paul, he brings this up with the Thessalonians because they were in the Greco-Roman world, uh, and that was a world that they lived in where sexual immorality was everywhere, uh, and nothing much has changed. Um, I had a friend I went through uni with. He is in the mining industry. He did it on the East Coast. I presume if he was here, he would be rolling in it because there's so many mines and stuff around here. And he told me the first time that he went, uh, about the time he went into the lunchroom at the mine that he was working in. So he brings in his, kind of, his lunchbox, whatever it is. He comes in and he sits down and puts the lunchbox down and then realises in front of him the table is completely strewn with porn magazines. And so being the godly Christian who wants to be holy and please God, he goes, all right, well, I'm not going to look at the table. I'll look up. And on the wall in front of him, completely plastered, were pictures of porn. So he goes, that's okay. I'll shuffle my chair around. Porn. I'll shuffle my chair around. Porn. And so at this point, he's really, really just kind of dying here. And he goes, you know what? At least I can look at the ceiling. Nah. (laughs) And that's the world that we live in, isn't it? We are immersed in a culture that is not only filled with sexual sin, but actively promotes it and in fact celebrates it. And what holiness looks like in this space, according to Paul, is to abstain from it, to avoid it. To set ourselves apart from the common practices of the world and instead express our sexuality in a way that pleases God and not ourselves And Paul tells us in these verses two things that that might look like. And the first one we see there is in verse four. Um, Let's have a look. He says this, um, that you should avoid sexual morality. And here's his explanation, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, Now, notice the contrast there in these verses. The one who pleases God controls his or her body and its urges and its desires And they channel them into expressions of sexuality that are holy and honourable. Compare that with the pagan, the pagan who doesn't know God uh, and therefore doesn't want to please God. What do they do? They let loose. They give themselves over to passionate lust. And I think as you look around society, you can see this, can't you? Because what's the mantra of our age? If it feels good, do it. And we are driven by our pleasures. We do not like discomfort. We avoid it at all costs. So much so that what we have done today is we have elevated pleasure to such a height that to deny it or repress it or restrict it, well, actually, it's oppressive and it's evil. Uh, You can't make me not do that. That's to do violence against me. Uh, And this is especially true of sex. Uh, In the last couple of decades, we've seen some massive shifts in sexual ethics uh, as such that what has happened is our sexuality has become the basis of our identity. And so unless we can express ourselves and express what we feel, then somehow our, our very self is diminished. And so to be authentic to oneself means freedom to sleep with who I want, uh, when I want, how I want, with no restriction. Uh, and what Paul says is that's not freedom. And that's certainly not the means to please God. In fact, it's an indication that you do not know God um, or the way in which he has created sex to flourish. And so what God has done is in creating it, because he made it and it is good, he puts limits on it in such a way that it is um, contained such that it will only ever be good. Uh, And that might be a bit of a foreign concept to you. I feel like it is growing up in, in the air and breathing the air that you guys have breathed as you've grown up. But I just want to say that we agree with limitations on good things. Because think about food. I don't think anybody would say eating without limit, without consideration, is a good thing. Um, we see somebody kind of at the all-you-can-eat all buffet or, like, just smashing the Tim Tams. And we're like, well, buddy, slow down, okay? Have a carrot. Um, but we, we, we don't think that eating to excess a, 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 at any point is a good thing. We put limitations on it. Diets are, on the whole, seen as positive, even though they're also seen as completely useless and and not helping anyone. Uh, And and that's because the things that bring us pleasure can be damaging if they're used in excess or in the wrong context. And so what God does is he lays out a way for us that we should and shouldn't express our sexuality for our good. Um, And the sign of a person who knows God and who wants to please God is somebody who seeks to bring their body under control. Not to suppress who they are, but to express who they are. Uh, And they channel their sexual expression in ways that are holy and honourable to God. So that's the first example of what holiness in sexuality looks like. The second we see there is in verse 6. Paul says that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Now, in the original context, that brother or sister there that Paul is talking about is the husband or wife of the person that you commit adultery with. Uh, and it was somebody within the church. He's addressing a particular community. Uh, and that term there, take advantage, is actually an economic term. kind of means to defraud or rip off or steal. Uh, and so what Paul is saying here is that when you commit sexual sin outside of the bounds upon which God has put on it... Um, it isn't just an isolated event that you do in the privacy of your own room, away from the eyes of all others. It actually harms other people. Uh, you can't avoid it. You can't escape it. That's just what it does. Uh, and so the whole idea of, you know, that, that kind of, that, that kind of um, phrase that people just throw, so, so long as there's two consenting adults, it's okay, it's actually complete rubbish. Uh, Because the impact of our sexual conduct will always extend beyond the ones who engage in it. And if you want proof of that, just think of the impact of adultery. Um, It takes advantage of your brother and sister. Because what you're doing is you're taking something and someone that is rightfully theirs to enjoy sexually, that they have promised to one another in that covenant of marriage, and that you're taking it when you have no right to take it. And so you are defrauding your brother and sister... Uh, And the impact goes beyond even them because it goes to the families, it goes to the communities they live in. Uh, And I have seen churches ripped apart because of adultery. Uh, Churches that take decades to kind of get healthy and build trust again because of the damage of sexual sin and how it just continues to echo out beyond the people who do it. Now I want to say, even though he specifically has in mind here adultery, this applies actually for all forms of sexual morality. Uh, think about sex before marriage, right? This might be a bit of a strange one. I talked to another student earlier this year who just said, I don't get it, I don't see how having sex with this person impacts anyone or anyone else in the future. And, and I said to them, well, one day you, you, the person you're sleeping with will marry somebody else um, in all likelihood. Um, and so even if you're just messing around with them, you're taking something that might not be and probably won't be yours. Uh, And so every time that we transgress someone sexually who is not our spouse, whether it's physical, whether it's dirty chat on the internet or whatever else it is, we are taking from the sexual integrity and safety and joy that they and their future spouse should reasonably expect to enjoy when they make the promises of marriage and enter into that exclusive binding. It also applies to pornography. Now, this might seem even a little bit stranger to you. It's just a random guy or girl on the screen. I don't know who they are. I don't know their real name. don't know where they live. But, but that person that you were viewing on the screen, you were taking advantage of that person. Whether or not they chose to do their job or whether they're trapped in it, like the vast majority, um, whether or not it seems like there's any interaction at all. And I think verse 6 here is telling for us. It gives us a warning. Um, what does it say? The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Um, He is an avenger. Uh, The harm that we do to people when we sin against them in this way, no matter how small, no matter how distant, no matter how removed, God will hold to account. He is aware of those who are wronged in this way, just as he's aware of people wronged in all the other ways of injustice. And because he is a God of justice... He does not forget the cries of the afflicted. Uh, And so that's why what we do with our sexuality matters. Um, It is an injustice to other people. Now, before we move on to the second way to please God, which is love, I do want to kind of pause here. I just want to acknowledge that, that what God is asking us to do in this passage is really, really hard. Uh, and if the statistics are anything to go on, I'd say, and this is where we get awkward, okay, the majority of people in this room struggle with sexual morality in some way. It's okay, you're allowed to blink. You're not giving yourself away. <laughs> and if you've heard everything that's just been said from this passage, it might just feel like another nail in the coffin. You know, like, I get it, Matt, I get it. I'm supposed to be holy. But everything I do, I just can't seem to shake it. It's just There. And here's the thing that I want you to know. That which God commands, he enables. Uh, If you flick over in your Bibles one extra page um, to chapter 5, verse 23, let me read this to you. This has been a comfort to me in all aspects of holiness. I hope it's a comfort for you if you're in this particular space. Listen to what Paul says about God here in this passage. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and here's the hope the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it and so I just want to say if you're in that space wanting to be holy but struggling to be holy put weight on that verse don't throw in the towel and give up Don't give in to your passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, because you know God. That's not you. You aren't the cracked dinner plate that you give to the toddler. You are the gold platter. You have been set apart by God, called not for impurity, this is verse 7, but holiness. And under God, over time, he will help you live up to the calling that he has given to you. And so your part in all of this is to not fall into the trap of verse 8, And reject God's command as though it was just given to you by somebody else. But instead, remember that it is given by the very God who gave you his Holy Spirit, not just to mark you as holy, but to make you holy. So I want to encourage you with those words. So that's the first way. How do we please God? Well, we do it by being holy, expressed specifically here in terms of our sexual purity. Second, and much more briefly, uh, we're going to look at brotherly love. And this is in verses 9 to 12. Um, Now we're going to do this one much more briefly, not because it's any less important, but because in some respects it's a lot simpler. Um, Let's have a look at verse 9 and 10. What does Paul say? He says this, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of of God's family throughout Macedonia. Uh, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now, one of the marks of a true Christian is that they love other Christians. Now, that might seem a bit odd. Uh, we'll get there in a moment. Um, but the one, the one another here, there's referring to in verse nine. It's not actually talking about people outside of the church. It's not as if we aren't to love people who aren't Christians. In fact, we're commanded throughout the New Testament to love the outsider. Uh, Jesus actually sets the gold standard for love, and he says to us in Matthew five forty four, Matthew five forty four, that we are to love our enemies. But interestingly, as we read through Scripture, there is also in Scripture a particular emphasis placed on loving fellow believers. Now, in theory, that kind of makes sense and that, that should should be really easy, right? Like these are the people that we see eye to eye with. They share our worldview, our conviction about sin, our love of Jesus. But But the reality is it's actually really, really difficult because you can't choose your family, can you? It's true of your biological family. Uh, It's true of your spiritual family as well. God chooses your family for you. And you know what God's principle is, right, in choosing uh, your family for you. He is saving people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every socio and economic bracket. And what that means is your church, your Christian family, is going to be one heck of a motley crew. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but this means that not all of them will like board games or spike ball. Okay? Uh, It's devastating. This is why loving is so hard. Uh, We have differences, even though God brings us together in Jesus and unites us. And so even as he unifies us under his son, that diversity will exist and it will create friction. And not only because we're still sinful, although that's a large part of it, but simply because we're different. Raised in different families. Uh, with different family cultures, maybe even different national cultures, different languages, and trying to work out how to live together in a loving way is just really fraught with difficulty. And so one of the ways that God calls us to walk and please him is to not merely tolerate our brothers and sisters, and you kind of give them, oh, yeah, okay, thanks, great, great, great to know you. Um, He calls us to actively love them because he has shed his blood for them as well. Now, the Apostle John will spell this out in more detail if you kind of go and read 1 John. And he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, just a really simple line, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's the logic of Christian love. God loved us, and he loved our brothers and sisters, and that compels us to love them with the same love that God loved them with. And for the Thessalonians, you would have noticed in the passage, They have understood this from the moment they were saved. They were taught by God such that Paul didn't even need to tell them that that was the logic of Christian love. It was just obvious to them that if God had loved them and bestowed his love on them in salvation, showing us mercy, bringing us redemption, then it makes total sense that I would share that love with those who've received it as well. It's actually one of the reasons that Paul knew the Thessalonians were truly Christian. They loved all God's family in Macedonia. I hope you saw there in verse 10 because that was their region. There wasn't anybody that they didn't love. Now, even though they weren't requiring of instructions, um, Paul still has something to say to them in verses 11 and 12. Uh, It's a warning. Uh, It's hard to know whether they're actually committing this particular sin or whether they're in danger of it personally or whether it's just something that Paul thought might be helpful for them to know. Um, But whatever the case is, uh, it helps us kind of understand a bit more about what it looks like to please God. Uh, Now, it's a bit of an awkward sort of kind of set of verses, 11 and 12. It's hard to know whether it's an extension of how to love or whether it's a third topic, in which case it might be a third way to please God. Um, I'll let you decide that Um, on one one level it doesn't really matter but I've chosen to take it together under the heading of love Um, and this is what he says, he kind of does this kind of quick direction change it seems Uh, we urge you, this is the end of verse 10 to do so more and more, that is to love, and then verse 11 and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone So as we look at those verses, what we can kind of gather is that the Thessalonians had an idleness problem, Uh, whether or not they're actually slacking off or they were just in danger of doing so. Again, we don't know. Uh, But what we do know is the impact of that sort of behaviour. It looks bad to non-Christians, those who are on the outside, and it places an unnecessary burden on the rest of the church. See, it's one thing to have a genuine need like unemployment. That's when the church really rises to the occasion and they financially support you. But it's another thing entirely to kind of just rock up to church and expect that somebody's going to buy you dinner afterwards when you head out to Macca's. Uh, In fact, to do so would be incredibly loving. Uh, Unloving, sorry, don't you think? And so what I think Paul is saying here is, do you want to love people? Do you want to please God? Then work quietly and diligently. There's a bunch of ways that this could look. Uh, It's going to change for each stage of life. But I think the place where this hits home for us is with our study at university and the distraction of social media. Now, I know that's probably like a kick in the guts, you know, kick them when they're down, it's week 11. Yeah, I know how many weeks some of you guys are behind on lectures and you're probably kicking yourselves going, oh man, I really shouldn't have slacked off and been idle and looked at all of those cat videos on <laughs> YouTube. Uh, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to pass. I get that, I get that anxiety, but I think there's a bigger issue going on here how many more opportunities would we have had to love and serve one another on campus, at your churches, in your families, if we had spent less time <clears throat> pardon me scrolling down on social media, on Facebook and YouTube and Insta? Now, I know this hasn't been a, a typical year. Uh, COVID has sort of demanded a level of personal organisation and discipline that we really haven't had a chance to cult- cultivate. But, but I think it's food for thought for us, isn't it? Because our current habits, mine included, they aren't helping us here. And I think what we need to do is we need to test our own hearts and see whether our behaviour is pleasing to God in this regard. Or is it idleness? Is it cultivating a sort of laziness that's going to impact the church later on in your absence, even in your physical need, um, if you don't take initiative in that area? And so what Paul calls us to do is be diligent. Be diligent to be quiet, put our heads down and work. And when we do that, not only will we uh, present the gospel and adorn the gospel to outsiders, but we will be doing uh, and working in such a way that it is becoming to the Lord Jesus and ensures that we aren't a necessary, an unnecessary burden on his people. Now, I'll say this, change will take time in this area, just as it will with sexual purity. Um, I'm 31 and I'm still working on being disciplined. Facebook is killing me at the moment, right? But we keep coming back to the God who will sanctify us and make us holy, the one who enables what he commands, and we seek to cultivate habits even now that bit by bit, like the Thessalonians, we will love people more and more, and as we abound in that work that pleases God, we will please God with our lives. Now we're at time, I know it's a quarter two, so I'm probably not going to say much more than that. Only to say this how we live as Christians matters. It's not just get into the kingdom and then everything's set. In one sense it is. Our salvation is not dependent on how we live. It's on what Jesus did. But as people who have been changed by the Lord Jesus and saved not for impurity but for holiness, how we continue to live matters because we want to please God. And we've seen it in two areas today. Holiness, manifesting in sexual purity. And then brotherly love, manifesting in quiet and diligent work. Some things to do, probably too much to do, but some stuff to have rattling around in your head as you go off and study. How about we pray? Father, thank you for making it abundantly clear what your will for us is and how we can please you. Help us not to be rebellious and ignore what you say, but instead put our shoulders to the task with the help of your spirit to live lives that are honouring to you. Help us do that knowing that it pleases you Help us to delight in that work, knowing that it is becoming of us who you have made us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm pretty sure that's the end of public meeting. Save Dave from getting out of his chair.